Good morning. Happy New Year. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for your uh, truth, and we thank you for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten us, transform us, and enable us to uh, be your representatives on earth. And as we anticipate a new year, we ask that this year will be a, a high banner year for your kingdom, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ will go forward in a, in a powerful way this year. There's so many people in this world that are living in fear of all kinds, and we, we pray that the message of love that casts out fear will, will be the message that is uh, seen by the people of this planet that we can prepare to meet you we pray in your holy name amen all right we're doing lesson three in the quarterly in those last days the message of hebrews and the memory verse this week is from hebrews 1 1 through 3 in the past god spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then the first paragraph of the lesson reads, right after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised them a seed, a son, who would deliver them from the enemy, recover the inheritance that had been lost, and fulfill the purpose for which they had been created. This son would both represent and redeem them by taking their place and ultimately by destroying the serpent. What is the significance of the Genesis 3.15 promise? The promise of the seed that will crush the serpent's head. In addition, obviously, to the, to the promise that, that we will be saved through him. What's the significance of that promise when we read scripture? The victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus is promised, yes. It becomes a lens to understand why the Bible writers focus where the Bible writers do in the channel of human history. The channel of human history that the Bible takes is the channel of the coming Messiah. This is why we don't have written about the Aztecs or the Chinese in Scripture, because Messiah was coming through Abraham's descendants and not all of Abraham's descendants. We don't focus on Esau's descendants or Ishmael's descendants. We focus on Jacob's. And ultimately, we narrow it all the way down to, to the tribe of Judah by the time Jesus comes. The whole focus of the Old Testament is this fulfillment of the promise of the coming Messiah. That's the whole focus. And then when you understand that, then you can understand what's happening. Satan is working to stop it. God is working to keep it open. This is the battle. This is the focus. Promised Messiah. And without Jesus, nobody's saved on earth. It's only because of Jesus that any human being is saved. The species human is saved in Jesus in addition to individual humans. But this also helps us understand after Jesus, after Jesus comes, after his victory, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, where does the Bible focus? The Bible no longer focuses on genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob after this. After this, the Bible focuses on those who carry the gospel message of Jesus. It shifts its focus from the genetic descendants to the gospel messengers, they may, they may be genetic descendants like Paul, but they may not be genetic descendants. And you see this in Bible prophecy. Bible prophecy that extends past Jesus focuses on the conflict between those carrying the gospel and Satan working to oppose the gospel. That's why, again, Bible prophecy doesn't take us into what's happening in the North American Indians. 
Okay? It keeps us focused on where the gospel. That's why it focuses so much in Europe, because this is where the gospel ended up spreading from. And this is where the, the, the counterfeit gospel was rising up to misrepresent the gospel. This is the focus of Scripture. It's always on Christ and the, and the good news that Christ brings. That, that, that is the, the focus. With that lens, it kind of helps clarify a lot of things as we look in Scripture. The last sentence, um, what neither Adam and Eve, Abraham or David, this is the last sentence from the quarterly, um, probably ever imagined, however, was that their Redeemer, Son, would be God himself. Why was it necessary, or is it necessary, whichever past and present uh, you want to put it in, is it necessary that God himself be our Savior? Why couldn't some other sinless being from some other sinless unfallen world or angel like Gabriel come and give his life for us? Jesus' application of that metaphor in his parables, he says the seed is the word. Of course, he is the living word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes we think of the woman as a human woman only. You know, It's because we tend to think of simple ideas that can't be superpositioned. But the fact is, Christ came from two directions. He came through the seed of, of Adam at, on the human level, but from the divine level, he came from the heavenly Jerusalem. And the Bible says in Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem above is our mother, and she is free. That pre-existent civilization working with God was present at the creation of this planet. And so their, their, their most prized child, the, the eternal Son of God, was not just given through the human line, he was given from the divine level and through that pre-existent civilization of this earth. In Revelation 12, the woman is pregnant with Christ before his birth as the heavenly woman. And, you know, Mary doesn't work, the church is yet to be established. So heaven gave us Jesus, not just earth. Two lines converge in the nature of Christ. Now, you know, I just want to pop that in. No, I love that. I love that. I think that's exactly right. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Hebrews 1, 1 is pregnant with that Genesis 3.15 promise through that line. No, I love that. I, I agree with that completely. Thank you. So this idea, building on what you said then, um, we can ask, keep in mind, why was it necessary for God himself? Why God, not another being? So God was the ultimate one who was attacked in heaven, not human beings. The war was against God. And if we have a non-divine being coming as our Savior, we actually don't learn anything about God other than he's willing to sacrifice somebody else. <laughs> okay? Okay? And so this is why God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. So all the things that he does for us as our divine human Savior, it's a, a, a dual revelation and achievement. And so, we, so God was required to answer the questions to put a halt to the, the rebellion occurring in heaven. So how do we know, though? What evidence do we have from Scripture that Jesus is, in fact, more than just a human being? Because... What, Revelation 22.16? Okay, well, t- tell us. I don't remember that one off the top of my head what it says. I am the root and offspring of David. Okay. The bright and morning star. Okay. Three natures. The root is the origin of David's line. 
The offspring of David is the seed of David's line. The bright and morning star is the language of an angel. He is the angel of the Lord. The morning star is saying for joy at the dawn of time. Okay. So our Jehovah's Witnesses friends wouldn't have a problem with that. And they would say the bright and morning star is the angel, not actually fully God. He is a created angel that was. So they wouldn't dispute that. But how do we know he's fully God from Scripture? The Bible reveals the angel Lord is the Lord. And they would fail to recognize the clear statements of the Torah that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Okay. So what scriptures do we have that help us understand that Jesus is fully God? That's the question before us. Isaiah prophecies about Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. All okay, all right, good, good. I like that one. So Isaiah chapter 9, for us to us, a child is born, his name, uh, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. So who's the counselor? The Holy Spirit. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But you already mentioned one earlier. John 1. And Isaiah 44, 6 is a great one as well. The Word in the beginning was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were made. This is Creator, God. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So there's really good texts that tell us that the one born isn't just a created being, uh, but he's fully God and divine. And this is important to our salvation. The, and there's many other texts, and we don't, we're not going to go through all of them. Um, but, but I think there's a very powerful Bible case to be made that Jesus isn't just a human being, but he's a divine son of God also. Sunday's lesson, uh, the first paragraph of he, uh, says, in the first paragraph of Hebrews reveals that Paul believed he was living in the last days. Scripture employs two expressions about the future that have different meanings. The prophets use the expression last days or latter days, now listen to this, to talk about the future in general. The prophet Daniel used the second expression, the time of the end to talk more specifically about the last days of earth's history. And so they're making the point that latter days or last days can mean these days. <laughs> in other words, Paul's saying in, in these latter days, okay? Um, or they often mean the last days or latter days, meaning the days after the promises of the Messiah have been realized. And so Paul's living in the days after Messiah, came and rose again. So he's living in the last days or the days after those promises were fulfilled, whereas the end of days refers to the end of time. That's what they're making a distinction in some places. The Bible will use language like that, and context will kind of indicate that. The Greek says literally the end of the days. The use of the definite article would be contextually most naturally associated with the seven weeks of day and night. Because in, Daniel, in Hebrews 9, he uses the exact Greek equivalent of the language of Hebrews of Daniel 9. When he uses the word phaneros, which is the Greek equivalent of mare, used in Daniel 9, 23, to introduce the 70 weeks. The end of the days, and Peter, first Peter... So you're making the point that it's the end of the days of the prophecies of the Messiah. Which pointed forward to the word to restore and build Jerusalem, Davar. Mm-hmm. He is the living word as well as the fulfillment of the decree. He comes at the end of the time prophecy. So this is, again, the point. The last days or these latter days are not speaking of the end of time. They're speaking of the last days of those prophecies or the latter days. Monday's lesson, 
points us to Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and we just read much of that. Uh, and the point of, of, these, um, of what Hebrews is saying about Christ uh, speaking and God speaking to us now through Christ instead of through all the um, prophecy of the Old Testament who Christ is. The point of all this is that God has been working to reveal truth to us throughout history. Ever since Adam's fall, God has been working through history to reveal truth to us. But the ultimate truth is revealed in his son. That's the point of, of what the first few verses are. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father's thoughts lived out in human flesh. Ellen White actually uses the term uh, God's thoughts made audible and visible. Do you agree that um, that this is what Hebrews is saying, that Jesus is the one through whom uh, we must center? Uh, oh, they also have this in the lesson, that Jesus is the one through whom we understand Scripture. He's the, he's the key to understanding it. Do you agree with that idea that we understand the Bible through Jesus? He is the key in his life. What about the Old Testament? Do we understand the Old Testament through Jesus, or do we make Jesus fit to our understanding of the Old Testament? If you understand Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament, then you will accuse him of not supporting Moses because he didn't stone the woman caught in adultery, he didn't endorse their divorce laws, and he didn't support an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. He reinterpreted them, and they accused him. So if you make Jesus fit to the Old Testament, then he has to abide by the rules. That's what they did. But Jesus helped them understand it was never God's plan for them to actually be stoning each other in the first place. It was God's plan that love be restored in their hearts. That was his plan. And this is of the book Christ Object Lessons, page 133. See what you think of this quote. The significance of the Jewish economy, that's the sacrificial service, the feast days, and all these things. The significance of the Jewish economy, and this was written in the 1890s. Uh, the significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Just let that sink in with your understanding of Adventist theology. One of the founders of the Adventist Church said in the 1890s that the Adventist Church didn't fully comprehend the Old Testament economy, the Jewish economy. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are open to it, to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. Far more than we do. The gospel. What, what is the gospel? Through angel's message, an angel comes with the eternal gospel. What's an eternal gospel? Well, obviously we know gospel means good news. So there's eternal good news here. What is the eternal good news? Good news that is eternally true in all eternity future? How about was and is eternally true in eternity past? Is it still good news? Eternally, eternal good news. Eternal both ways. Is it eternally true in eternity past that Jesus died for our sins? Well, you can, you can make the case that some will try that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But I don't think it's true. The assault in heaven, the good news, is the good news that refutes the lies of Satan in heaven. The good news about God himself. It wouldn't be good news that Jesus died to pay for our sins so we can live in, in a kingdom in which a God reigns who functions like Satan alleges. That would not be good news. 
The good news is God is not like Satan alleged. That is the good news. And his kingdom doesn't function like Satan alleged. That's the ultimate good news. And under the umbrella of the ultimate good news about God, we have the good news that is revealed in the life of Jesus who became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's good news too, but it's, it's because of who God is, the ultimate good news, that Jesus and God so loved the world he sent his son. So all the things we have in the ministry of Jesus are a function of the good news of who God is. Am I, am I wrong about that? It's an outworking of God's character, and, and, his, and, his, and that's the ultimate good news. And understanding that good news is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. And if you don't understand that good news, then the Old Testament becomes mysterious and contradictory. And we interpret much of Jesus' ministry through a dark, symbolic lens of Old Testament sanctuary service. Jesus is represented in Hebrews as the creator. What kind of law does creation operate upon? Design law. It's not a system of rules. This was under Satan's lies in the beginning. Uh, Desire of Ages, 762. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God cannot be obeyed, and if man uh, uh, should be, or every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. From the beginning, sin requires inflicted punishment. That's how human law works. Only coming back to design law. Do we actually understand the truth about God? The truth about God's character, his kingdom, and how reality functions. Now, if you were Satan, and after Jesus comes, he wins his victory over you, he defeats you in the desert of temptation, he defeats you through all of his uh, manipulations of your own apostles and Judas betrayal and the abuse and the and the and the unjust trial and the unjust crucifixion. And after Satan uh, is defeated by Jesus, and Jesus ascends into heaven. Satan attacks the early church through persecution to try to, well, I'm going to have to stop the gospel now. How do I stop the gospel? Let's kill everybody who likes it. Let's try to kill them all. Okay? But in doing that, what happened? The gospel spread. And so after failure to stop Jesus, after failure to stop the early gospel messengers, and in fact his method of trying to kill them was resulting in it spreading more rapidly through Rome, if you were him, what's your next strategy? And what did he do? He embraced it. Bring it in. Convert your emperor of Rome. And then infect it with Roman imperialism. And Christianity becomes a state religion. And the principles of human states and statecraft become part of the church. And the idea that God runs his universe like a Caesar runs Rome becomes orthodoxy. And all types of corruptions then infect the church. And the Protestant Reformation came along and reformed some of the doctrinal abuses, indulgences and such and such, Sabbath day. But they did not yet fully cast off the lie about law. And most Protestants still embrace the idea that God's moral law functions like human law. He made up rules. And as the rule giver, he must enforce rule breaking, and thus he must kill rule breakers. And he loves us too much, so he sent his son and executed his son in our place. And if you accept the payment to your record in heaven, then the magistrate of heaven will give you a legal pardon 
This is all Roman infection of Christianity. It's not biblical. The biblical truth, Jesus is our substitute. Absolutely. We could not be saved without the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it wasn't for legal mechanics. It was for actual healing, recreation, regeneration, restoring the species to sinlessness. I will write my law in your heart and mind, it says in Hebrews. I already quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our substitute became sin, even though we knew it was sin, so that we might become, not be declared, the righteousness of God. It's for actually becoming righteous and restoring us to righteousness. And so that's what he did, his attack, and and it's been quite successful. The sixth paragraph in the lesson says, Meanwhile, Jesus came to be our representative and our savior. He would take our place in the fight and defeat the serpent. Similarly, in Hebrews, Jesus is the pioneer or captain and forerunner of believers. He fights for us and represents us. This also means that what God did for Jesus, our representative, the Father, will also wants to do for us. He who exalted Jesus at the right hand also wants us to sit with Jesus on his throne. God's message to us in Jesus includes not only what Jesus said, but also what the Father did through him and to him, all for our temporal and eternal benefit. Jesus is our representative, exactly so. Exactly so. As the second head of our species, he is the second Adam. He's not the second Tim Jennings. And this was necessary for the species human to be saved. See, God was free to create a new creation. He could have taken dirt from this planet and made a new sinless being like he did in the beginning. But that, that even, even a new human being he could have made from dirt. But that human being would not have been part of this creation. It would have been a new creation, a new species. To save, the, to save the species he created in Eden, he had to have a member of the species overcome the problem. And this is what Jesus did. He became our second Adam. And how did he do it? Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who live all their lives who were held in slavery by their fear of death. What does this mean? Jesus' death destroys the devil's power. The devil has the power of death, it says. Okay, the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? What law? In the same passage he talks about is the power of death. Yes, how? How does that work? The law condemns. The law condemns? Yeah, therefore the sinner dies. But, but, but why does the sinner die? Does, I just answered it. No, no, you didn't. No, 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 we have to, we have to, we have to pause, pause, pause. No, pause. So I, you're exactly right, but let's clarify the question. Is it the sinner dies because they're under condemnation of the law in a legal way, and the ruling authority has to execute them for it? Is that why they die? Or is there another reason? Let me share with you a statement from Youth Instructor at 16, 1903. More than we could possibly endure, Christ endured in our behalf, sinless to the last, he died for us. Justice demanded, not merely, that sin be pardoned, which is an amazing statement, 
The death penalty must be met. The Savior has met this demand. His broken body, his gushing blood, satisfied the claims of the law. Thus he bridged the gulf made by sin between earth and heaven. He suffered in the flesh that with his robe of righteousness he might cover the defenseless sinner. Now, the most amazing part of that statement to me is his justice required that he forgive the sinner, which is not human justice. But the other part of it is it also required the death penalty. So, so I, that's in keeping with the statements in, in, in Paul. But he still didn't answer the question. Well, it, actually, it does. No, no it doesn't. <laughs> so where does the death penalty come does it come from God, who is the uh, uh, who is the righteous magistrate using his power to inflict the death penalty? Does it come from another source? Here it says justice. Okay. So is it coming from God, or is it, is it not coming from God? Is God the inflictor of death? Does death come from God? Does justice come from God? That's the key question. If it okay. Is, yes. When we come back to justice, then what does justice mean? Here it tells you. Justice means to do what's right. What defines justice? In boxing, it's just to punch somebody in the face. In soccer, it's unjust to punch somebody in the face. Why? In the United States, it's unjust to drive 160 miles an hour. In, in the Autobahn in Germany, it is just to do so. God's justice requires he forgive the sinner. Okay. That's not the way we think of justice. I gotcha. But it also requires he execute the death penalty, she says. So you just said he execute the death penalty. So he's the executioner in your view? Yes, he is. Okay. That, that, that's, that's what I was unpacking here. And this is the, this is the in fact, this is... Think about the meaning of the word execute. Because execute means to pass judgment. It doesn't mean to kill. Depends on, it depends on your death. So when the, when the state executes somebody in the death chamber, they're, just, they're not actually killing them. No, but the, the word execute actually means to pass judgment. So when we execute somebody in Nashville in the death chamber and we eject into them uh, chemicals, we're not actually killing them. We're just passing judgment on them. The literal meaning is we are executing the sentence. We're not killing. That's the meaning of the word. Okay, so, so we're not actually ending their life. See how hard we have to work to avoid the truth here? See how, how many mental gymnastics we have to work through to avoid the idea that the penal view has God as the source of death and the killer of people? I'm just correcting the use of that word execute, what yeah. it means. And, and, and I'm going to suggest to you that if you look in your dictionary, it has multiple meanings and you're identifying one and ignoring another. It actually does mean to take life. If you just pull up your dictionary, most English words have more than one definition. In the spirit of prophecy, she says, execute the death penalty. She's using legal language there. She's using it. I'm not. But I'm not saying that she's saying God is arbitrary. I'm not saying that she's saying God is ruthless. Okay. I'm simply saying she's using that language, and she's valid in using that language. We'll see. If I can unpack this some more, we'll see that there's a deep infection in Christian thought. I appreciate you. So the penal model has the execution of being God using his power to end life. Because that's what you have to come to if you believe the law functions like human law. So if God were not to execute justice, let's ask it this way. If God were simply to restrain himself, not execute, not use any power against the sinner, would they live eternally in sin? 
is Satan's view. Look, guys, there's nothing wrong with sin. Sin doesn't harm. Harm comes from God for sin. And if God would simply get some self-control and not use his power, get some anger management classes, not use his power to hurt us, then we could live eternally in sin because sin actually doesn't hurt us. God hurts us for it. Is that the view we want to take? That's the penal view that God is required by justice and law to execute, but not only execute, torture you as long as you deserve before he executes you. Some will burn longer in the flames. This is often the text used to support that idea. Yeah, you have a comment before I bring this home. The simplified version of that would simply be we know that uh, the wages of sin is death. And when Adam sinned, he corrupted, spiritually corrupted the seed of man. So he is removed from his source of life, eternal life, which was Eden and the tree of life. So he was removed from that. And at that point, then the natural order of things becomes you get old and you die. Okay, that's first death. That is not wages of sin death. So we're talking second death, wages of sin death. Okay. You should have died that day yeah. based on that statement. Okay. Not 100 years later or by degree. I've got to finish this, I've, and I haven't been able to bring my point home. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I've got to bring this home. Okay. So the power of sin is in the law. Okay. That's exactly correct, but it goes back to exactly how do you understand the law. Ellen White in various places says that the opening of the Great Controversy began with a question over God's law, and it ends over the same issue, an attack on God's law. Uh, uh, the, the way it was attacked was by implying or making the allegation or the insertion that God's law is rules made up that require enforcement. And the reality is, when you come back to see God as creator and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, then you understand his laws are the laws that reality function upon, including the moral laws. And any deviation from those separates you from the channel of blessings. So the same woman who wrote that wrote, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for the sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it makes in him a change of character, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. They separate themselves from the channel of blessing and the sure result is ruin and death. Galatians 6, 8, those who sow to the carnal nature, and this is where we're going, from that nature reap destruction, not from God. God is not the source of death ever. He is the source of life. Sin severs that connection and we die. Now, how is the law the power of sin? How is the law the power? And it absolutely is. If you take 50-pound weights, tie them to your legs, and jump in the ocean or a lake, you are now breaking the law of respiration. There's a law. It's the law of respiration. It's a design law, one of the laws of health. If you break that law, where does the power come from that kills you? The law of respiration. So breaking God's law is the power of sin. Because life only operates in harmony with the law God built the universe to operate upon. And any deviations from that result in ruin and death. And God is just in both sending his son to become sin that knew no sin, because that's what love does, okay, the justice of love. But he's also just in leaving free all those who refuse to be healed and reconciled and let them reap what they have sown into their carnal nature, which is eternal destruction. 
So it's both. There is a penalty, and the penalty is death. But the penalty does not come out as an infliction that they would not otherwise reap. It is the natural result of rejecting the healing that God freely offers. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. The lesson focuses our attention on the glory of God and points the text uh, in, in the lesson. We're not going to read them all, but these are very, very truthful Bible texts that the glory of God, the lesson points to, looks like brightness or fire or brilliance and the Shekinah glory, the pillar of uh, fire by night, the burning bush, Moses' face radiating some, some reflections of this, the Mount of Transfiguration. So the Bible gives this picture of God's glory being fiery brilliance in many places. There's no question about that. But is that aspect of God's glory the greater or lesser manifestation of his glory? It's much lesser. It's much lesser. It's, and, 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 and can Satan counterfeit that type of glory? Yes. And that's why it's much lesser, because Satan can counterfeit brilliant light. We don't know, well, is, is this the Messiah or is this the counterfeit Messiah? Well, get your light meter and see how bright the light is, and we can check to see if it's not bright enough yet, and it has to get to so many lux of light before we know it's really Jesus. No! It is not who's got the biggest light show in the sky that tells us whether this is Messiah or not. It is something else. And what is it? It's his character. And... uh if you look in the scripture, Haggai uh, 2, 7 through 9, speaks about the second temple. And it says the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former, Solomon's temple. But then in Ezra 3.12, the older priests who were alive to see Solomon's temple before they went into captivity, as they saw the foundations laid for the new temple, it says the older priests and Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple because it was so small. Yet, the Bible says this smaller one is more glorious than Solomon's. And, and of course, Bible scholars will tell you it's because in the second one, what happened? Jesus, 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 he came in his own person. He was there. But wait, what happened on the day Solomon's temple was dedicated? The priest couldn't enter because the glory of God. So God actually came in person to both. The first bigger one had the brilliant glory there. The second little one didn't have the brilliant glory. It had the humble glory. And the Bible says that's more glorious than the first. Am I wrong about that? And then if you remember when Moses was on the mountain and asked to see the glory of the Lord, and you can see this in Exodus 33, 19 and 34, 5 and 6, asked to see the glory of the Lord, it said, the Lord put him in the cleft of the rock and said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. The Lord, compassion and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, and not letting the guilty go unpunished. This is his character. Not letting guilty go unpunished because to let the guilty go unpunished would require a suspension of his design law upon which reality operates, taking away their liberty, forcing them to be chained to his side against their will. He won't allow that. He lets them reap what they insist upon at the end. He gives them freedom. Sets them free to what they, what they have insisted upon. That's why he will not prevent them from being punished. He allows them to be punished. That's part of his justice. So the fiery splendor can be counterfeited, but God's character, Satan cannot counterfeit.
And Satan is going to come in the near future. I'm telling you, it's the near future in my view. I'm not, I'm not a date setter, but I'm telling you, we could live to see it. We could just look what's happening in the world. Okay? Um, and when he comes, he's going to come with, with some astounding light shows. Maybe it's called Fired Out from Heaven, Revelation 13. But he's going to perform miracles, make it appear the dead have risen. I suspect he will shine in some way we can't figure out. But he will then use his methods of coercion and force. But he will do it crying with tears in his eyes, saying he only loves us. Just like an abusive husband, I only beat you because I love you. No, he will do it. I only love you guys, but in order to save you, uh, yeah, in order to save you, 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 have to, you have to worship me. And if you don't all agree on my leadership, then I can't protect you. And so some of you rebels, uh, and he might, he might do it directly. He might, he might pawn it off on his uh, siblings. He might pawn it off on the leadership of this world and say, hey, I, uh, you know what? There's this uh, galactic war going on. Um, some Adventists call it the cosmic conflict. Yeah, there's a galactic war going on. Uh, 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 we've, we've won in most sectors of the, of the universe. Uh, this is the last sector, this spiral arm of the Milky Way, where there's still rebellion going on. And, and, and I've, I've already defeated my enemies in the rest of the universe, but, but this section of the Milky Way, um, there, there is, the enemy is coming, and he's coming to destroy this planet. What does the Bible teach Jesus is coming to do to the world as we know it? Destroy this planet. <laughs> This planet is going to melt in fervent heat. <laughs> okay? And he's going to create a new one. But he leaves that part out as he always, when he quotes scripture, he always leaves certain parts out. But he, that we have an enemy coming to destroy the planet. And I'm here, and, I, and I've been fighting him for millennia. I've been fighting him for millennia. I, and according to galactic law, I cannot bring all of my technology and, and power and, and my armies to bear to protect you Unless you as a planet agree. If there are dissenters among you, I'm sorry. You'll have to have a a cohesive agreement to have me as your leader. And you can see how, how, how long would it take for the, for the, uh, especially when he does a few miracles, um, unbelievable, beyond anything we can understand. How long do you think it would take for our current world leaders to be willing to imprison people who won't, uh, won't, won't uh, support that? Very, very quickly. Okay, very quickly. It'll happen so fast, so fast. Anyway, this is how it could happen. But see, the method's being employed. The method's being employed. Even though he cries that I don't want this to, please don't make me do this. Uh, justice will require. And all those who accept worldly justice will go, that's right. Justice requires you have to punish. But under those who worship a creator recognize no justice doesn't have to. Inflict punishment. Justice heals and saves. And justice leaves those who won't accept remedy free to die of their condition. You see, the same exact thing happening with COVID, folks. Those who don't practice God's methods are willing to force treatments upon people. Those who practice God's methods persuade in the most loving way possible what they think is the healthy avenue, but they leave people free. This is the way the Adventist health message has always worked historically. Here, smoking is dangerous for you. Don't smoke. Here are some five-day plans. Here is this. Here is that. But at the end of the day, if you want to smoke, we leave you free. We wouldn't lock you in prison if you smoke. Look at the corruption, the conditioning that's happening. 
Wednesday's lesson. Uh, talks about Jesus as the creator, John 14, 6. Uh, excuse me, it talks about Jesus as creator that we just read in Hebrews in the beginning. And then in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, when we forget the truth about Jesus being creator, some people will take the John 14, 6 text and, and, and try to apply it in a way that, that says if, if, if there's somebody living in some remote part of the world through history and never had the Bible truth brought to them by a gospel messenger, they can't be saved because they haven't heard Jesus. They haven't made an affirmative, born-again conversion statement. But when you remember Jesus is the creator, then you remember what Paul wrote in Romans 1 and 2, that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse because nature reveals things about God. And in Romans 2, he goes on to say, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law, this is Torah, Scripture, uh, that are uh, righteous in God's eyes, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who have not who do not have the law, do by nature the things required in the law. They are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law, since it, sh- it is shown that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What is the new covenant? I will write my... These are born-again people. They haven't had the gospel presented. But they still come through Jesus because Jesus is the one who created all things. So we see truth in nature, they're still coming through Jesus. Okay? So we don't have any contradiction at all. So it's important to remember Jesus is our creator. Uh, In the third paragraph, it says, Jesus is also our judge. It says in the third paragraph, Jesus is also our judge. What law lens do you hear that through? Does that, when you hear that language, do you immediately, does it make your mind want to default into a courtroom? Not anymore. Not anymore, good. (laughs) Good for you. You've been listening. But historically, does does the word judge make you default into a courtroom? Doctor. So I always ask, what's what's the question I, I, I encourage you to ask? What law lens do you see it through? If you see it through human law, a judge, it's judicial. But if you see it through design law, you may be in a doctor's examination room. Now I want you to think through both settings. Think through both settings. Courtroom or courtroom versus doctor's office. Is examination happening in both? Are records reviewed in both? Are evidences presented in both? Are judgments made in both? Are the same laws being applied in both? Get your mind around that. Think about that for a minute. This is the key. God's law. Which version, courtroom or doctor's office, do you think more accurately represents Jesus? as our judge. What did David pray? Search me and see the wicked way. Created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. So if you ended up in the ER sick, you actually want the doctor to examine you deeply. You want him to find what's wrong. Or, or wait, you're really sick. You know something's wrong. Maybe you're cramping. Maybe you got a fever. Maybe you're vomiting blood. You know something's wrong. Doctor comes in to examine you. And you, and, and you say, here, here's my healthy brother. Examine him. And whatever you find healthy about him, put it in my medical record. <laughs> Is that what you would like to happen? No. Do you understand Christianity teaches that fraud? That God doesn't examine us. He examines Jesus, and he puts the righteousness of Jesus in our record in heaven. That's a lie. 
What happens is he examines us and see what's wrong. The Holy Spirit convicts us. When we want to trust, we open the heart, and the Bible says he writes his law in our hearts and minds. There's other metaphors. We partake of the manna, the bread of heaven. We eat or ingest the word. We drink the blood, which is my life is in the blood. And thus, it's no longer I that live, but Christ. Amen. We get a new heart and right spirit. We're recreated in the inner man. It's no longer, yeah, I already said that. So, so the whole metaphors all teach what? Healing. Healing, regeneration. Okay, so what happens is the medical record, uh, excuse me, the heavenly records are like medical records. They do change. Because they accurately reflect what's happening in our characters. So when we die to self and are reborn, and it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, when the Father looks at us, he sees Christ because Christ lives in us. And the records reflect the accurate history of our transformation and regeneration and renewal. It's not a legal adjustment. It's, it's accurate reality, diagnostic. It's how it works. Seeing Jesus is seeing the Jesus in us. That's right. Ellen White wrote in Cross Object Lessons, I think it's page 311. 311, yes. Um, that the robe woven in the womb of heaven has not one thread of human devising. And then she goes on to say that when we accept Christ, our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our will is merged with his will. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered with the robe of righteousness. The covering of the robe of righteousness is not a covering over. It's just a metaphor to describe the regeneration of Christ-likeness within. It's always, it's always the reality. God's a God of reality. He's not a God of fantasy. And Bible metaphors are only metaphorical to the degree they're attached to reality. If you disconnect a metaphor from reality, it becomes fantasy. Parables are only parables if they teach reality. This is all these ideas and, and verbal uh, illustrations are designed to teach reality. God is the God of reality. Much of what's taught is fantasy. It's superstition. It comes, and this is, this is paganism. Paganism's fantasy. It's superstition. It's not real. It's not real that we serve a God who requires the blood of a human sacrifice so he won't be angry at you and, and, and won't kill you. That's fantasy. It's not real. <laughs> so if we, if we uh, accept that God's law is like human law, we end up in a courtroom in the penal legal view of salvation. Heavenly tribunal. We're on, we're, we're, our, uh, Satan accuses us before God. Our records of sin are opened. Jesus, our advocate, steps up and pleads, my blood, Father, my blood, I've paid the debt. But in reality, because we just read in the lesson, Jesus is our judge. When he's pleading to the judge, my blood, my blood, well, the Father's actually at home watching on CNN, the Celestial News Network. Because the ju Jesus is actually our judge. So he's pleading to himself. Do you see how completely contradictory, bizarre, and schizophrenic the penal legal model is? 
I'm going to give you some, it's, it's, a, it, it's contradictory on so many levels. One member of the Godhead needs to be pled with by another member of the Godhead in order for them to forgive. But the one pleading is also the judge, so he's actually pleading with himself. So we have a two-faced God that on one hand is pleading for us, but the other hand is about to kill us. You see the same two-faced God presented by the penal legal adherents in the second coming, where he comes with smiles of joy and love and, and compassion in his save, but at the same time he has a face of wrath and anger and punishment for the lost. He's a two-faced. Split character. This is what penal legal systems do. Or one member of the Godhead needs to hide the truth from another member of the Godhead, erasing or uh, using his blood to blot it out or having a a robe hide so when the Father can't see through that, uh, he just sees the avatar of Jesus in our place. But really isn't uh, the Father not being able to see this because Jesus is the judge. So Jesus uses his blood to to hide our sins from himself. I mean, you see the contradictions when you teach this penal legal corruption. One member of the Godhead's angry, another member's kind and holy, and one, one, one's, or one's too holy. He can't stand sin. He must be separate from it. Another actually became sin, though he knew no sin, and identified with it in order to cure us. But yet, if you've seen the one, you've seen the other. Uh, this is what penal legal does. It creates a complete nonsensical. And, and, and what happens, is, I want you to understand, there's a, there's a rationale for this. I'm going to bring it to what's happening in the world today. When you teach this nonsense, people go, that doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't make sense to me. I'll just take that on faith. I won't even think about it. I'll just trust my pastor, trust my pope, trust my priest, trust my uh, biblical research institute, trust my, my theology professor. I'll just trust somebody who knows more than me because it makes no sense. That's what happens when you get these constantly contradictory messages that make no sense. Have you seen something like that in the last two years happening in America? Constant contradictory messages that make no sense? And it's designed to do the same thing. I just can't take that. I can't think. I can't figure this out. I'll just trust the authorities. I'll trust the doctors. I'll trust the CDC. I'll trust the FDA. I'll trust the president. I'll trust somebody. Just tell me what to do. It's the same dynamic. It's the exact same dynamic. But the mature are those who have developed, I practice the ability to discern. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm not here to do your thinking for you. You have your own identity, your own individuality, your own mind, and your own God-given responsibility to think for yourself, study for yourself, come to your own conclusions. This is why we are Protestants, priesthood of believers. You have to have your own living relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to know him for yourself. You have to confess for yourself, repent for yourself, love for yourself, trust for yourself. I can't do any of that for you. I can challenge you. In my, 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 our, our ministry, come let us reason together. That you're sinner, life, I, I want to inspire you. I want to challenge you. I want to get you your juices going so you'll, you'll dig in. Exercise those abilities, law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you... That's right. If you don't think and reason, you get weaker at it. But also your faith, you want stronger faith, you've got to exercise it. You want stronger love, you've got to love people. This is what happens. Yes. I was just going to say, that, and the reason the legal penal substitution model is so popular is it gives everybody the excuse that everybody wants. They don't have to do anything. They just have to claim 
that my brother is going to get me off my wretched life. You know, so again, it's, it's, it's the easy button. Everybody wants to be free of any... any You're exactly right. In the, in the Roman view, it is, I, I just have to go to confession, confess my sins to the priest, follow whatever requirements, I'm, whatever penances I'm required to do. I don't actually... And then I can still go home and run my mafia. I don't actually have to become righteous. I, I just have to do what the church says to have my, my sins taken care of legally by the system. In the, in the Protestant view, well, all my sins, past, present, and future, are placed on Jesus at the cross. And they were punished in Jesus on the cross. I just need to accept his payment, his, his blood, blood sacrifice for me. And when I accept that blood sacrifice, then it's applied to the cross, applied, excuse me, applied to my record, and, and I'm saved. And once I'm saved, I'm always saved. So it doesn't matter how I live now, I've been saved. This is a, a common Protestant view, isn't it? And you're right, this is easy. And then some Protestants will make it a little harder. All your sins confessed up to today have been paid for. But if you, ha- if you have a sin you haven't remembered, if you've forgotten it, didn't ask for legal pardon, God can't put his blood on it and therefore he can't forgive it. So he'll have to punish you for it, and you're still lost. You better have a good memory. And you can live in fear. And you live in fear, yes. Or, as the common altar call goes, calling for that, if you, somebody here who's never given the life to Christ, come, come forward. Um, but if you don't, I, I hope you don't get hit by a car on the way home and, and have some sin you haven't confessed. And <laughs> you, you know the call. Come because you're afraid. Not come because you love. Yeah, and I've I've watched those calls, and it's amazing, it's truly amazing. A call of love, really good, well done call of love. One or two come. Once they throw the fear on, about forty or fifty come. I've seen it. I've, I've watched the sad church audiences and watched it. It's quite profound. It's quite profound. Yes. That's the way I grew up. And when I got baptized, I, I said, okay, Jesus is going to wash all my sins away, so I don't have to worry about any of it. So then I went down, and I got up, and I said, okay, I'm, you know, I'm free from these sins. And then I thought of a dirty word. And then I thought, oh, no, maybe he should dump me again. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a common way people think, under the penal view. Under the penal view. When you understand the healing view, here, here, let me give this, and we'll probably have to close on this. I do want to mention, though, I was going to go into the, the four judgments, okay, because I'm talking about Jesus, our judge, okay? And uh, so if you, if you haven't read, in here we outline the four judgments of Scripture, and there's four different judgments in Scripture. The hour of his judgment has come. And we outline them here. I encourage you to, to get it and read it if you haven't. If, on, if you're not in the U.S., you can go to our website and you can read it online. But... Uh, but the, the metaphor for understanding what you just described, again, under the healing model. If you have bilateral pneumonia, it's a metaphor. Metaphors need to point to some reality, okay? If you have bilateral pneumonia, uh, we could say that without treatment, you're on the path of death. If we don't do anything, you're going to die. But you go to the doctor, you get diagnosed, and you get an antibiotic that will cure your pneumonia. As soon as you take the first pill, you've left the path of death, and you're now on a path that will lead to life. This could be representative of conversion. You've now partaken of the bread, Jesus Christ, the word. It's a metaphor. 
The day you take your first antibiotic, are you well that day? No. Uh, have all the fevers stopped? No. Uh, in fact, as the antibiotic starts to work, might you actually start cough up more crud? As you clear. And this is what happens when you come to Christ, your conscience becomes more sensitive. Things that you were unaware of in your life, the Holy Spirit enlightens, and you realize there's more crud in your character than you actually thought before, and you're bringing more stuff up, and you feel, and I've had my, I've had people come in, and they feel like they're getting worse. Because more crud, more phlegm is coming up after you start the antibiotics. You're actually getting better because it's being cleared out of the lungs. And as you come to Christ and you walk the walk with him, you, the Holy Spirit will bring more and more crud in your character to light and you'll cough more of it up, but you're not actually getting worse. You're actually being healed. And that's how it works. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ, our older brother, second Adam, new head of our humanity, who came and lived a perfect, sinless life to overcome where we could never come overcome. And now we ask that the Spirit, who Jesus promised, would come and take all that is his and make it known to us, taking his, his righteousness and reproducing it in us. We ask for this transforming power, enlightenment, discernment, and power to live victoriously, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and, and love each other as you have loved us. And, 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 and as this year unfolds, Lord, we ask that you will bless this ministry, bless our friends around the world, bless those who love your character and your name, that we might be empowered by your spirit, the outpouring, that we can glorify you in how we live and the truths that we share with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.